despite the fact that we have a relatively new minister who's going around the province and dropping the phrase good faith bargaining over and over again. In fact, he's already had his thumb on the scales since before the process even began. To tip the bargaining table in their favor before the process even begins, that's very different from what we've seen in the recent past. Welcome to Ontario Lab, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, how to between recovering political staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Kate Hammer. I'm Sam Andrew. I'm Alexi White. And today we're going to be doing a bit of cleanup after August break, covering a few things that happened while we were away. And we will also be looking ahead to the fall, because in addition to being back to school time for students and families across the province, it is also back to the legislature time for the Ford government. Although unlike students, they won't actually be coming back until after the 2020 federal election on October 28th. You will remember they gave themselves the extra long break back in the spring, with many suspecting that it was intended to keep the unpopular government out of the headlines to boost the federal conservative election chances. Later on in the pod, we'll be talking to Harvey Bishop, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, to get a sense of how the labor negotiations with teachers are proceeding. From the headlines, they seem to be going great. Um, but first, guys, on top of the labor negotiations, it seemed like over the summer, there was a new education headline coming out every day. Announcement after announcement from Education Minister Stephen Lecce, where they were planning on taking things in the new year. So here are just a few of them. New teachers will be required to score at least 70% on an Ikiweo-administered math test in order to be able to teach. The government will be banning the use of cell phones in the classrooms beginning in November. Many boards already have this policy, but it sets it as a provincial standard. The government has quietly released its updated health and physical education curriculum, aka sex ed, which maintains most of what was in the last one, including consent, gender identity, as well as the controversial teacher prompts related to masturbation and anal sex. And this closes the chapter on one of the government's most controversial moves. The GTA school boards announced they would be down a thousand jobs this school year because of Ford's cuts, which the education minister maintains were largely achieved through attrition, implying it was part of sort of the regular business cycle. A bizarre announcement that there would be no fundamental changes to average class size when they are in fact increasing it. They've reopened capital priorities program and they're going to build new schools, but they've decided that they've focused on, I guess, prefabricated modular schools and that it'll be cheaper to build than old schools. And the province announced it would be continuing funding for the school bus driver retention program, a $40 million initiative that cuts checks to school bus drivers for staying on the job. That's a lot. A lot of back to school stuff, which we can dive into the details on. But I want to get maybe started at a high level with what does this dizzying August announcement schedule tell us about their strategy on education and how it's evolving? So, uh, I mean, there was a lot of stuff there, Chris, with that recap. And every one of those items, I think, would be worth diving into and has a different backstory. And you know, some of it, I think, is stuff they just needed to tie up and get get moving on because of the usual cycle. So capital priorities, for example, they hadn't uh, opened up that program for school boards to submit proposals for new schools for quite some time. And they, they kind of needed to get on that. Similarly, the sex ed curriculum, they needed to just put that behind them. So I think that part of the reason why there's been such a flurry of activity. And of course, the major stuff still uh, seems to be the class sizes. That's what has, has the staying power. And I think the Minister Lecce realizes correctly that they they need to put a kinder face on that savings agenda of theirs. And you know the tough on spending talking points that they use a Cross government just aren't working. It didn't work for the last minister when you have kids as the ones who are feeling the pinch. So I think they were at the risk of sounding like uh, you know Dickensian orphanage owners if they had kept up with that kind of uh, approach. And so Lecce rightly is uh, shifting that tone with his sort of you know suggesting that he's open to other ideas for cost savings and that really stressing sort of his perspective, which um, you know I think is somewhat uh, disingenuous, but that all this is normal business and isn't really as big a deal as people are making it out to be. The announcement that Minister Lecce did on class size felt 
sort of like a straight up government doublespeak. I think what they were trying to do was actually, yeah, leverage the fact that in their view, uh, people's uh, take on on their cuts were overblown. And that the fact that their move from an average class size of 22 to 28 in the high school panel was going to be gradual over four years and say, hold up, hold up, this year it's not going to be 28 and make an announcement to that effect was pretty bold. Maybe just trying to, yeah, trying to sort of say, the people protesting on the lawn and, and pushing on this, they're all being hyperbolic, look, calm down. And we're the ones, you know, we're the, we're the calm managers of the system and, and it's all going to be fine. I'm curious, and I thought you were a really interesting point on them kind of being managers, because I think they have kind of stepped into a more mature space where they're, I think, trying to close off some of the some of the battles of the past, like quietly releasing sex ed in roughly the same condition that it was, is really irritating as I think former people who worked in the government that took the political lumps to pass that and not seeing them suffer those. But I'm like glad the policy is the same. I also think that, you know, they're obviously worried about school bus driver shortages. They halted all capital funding for their first year just because I think they were worried about large amounts of money going out the door and not having a handle on why, but like just to maintain the education system as it is, you need to increase the amount of money going to school buses and brick and mortar schools. You need to open new schools where they're students and close them where they're not. And seeing them recognize that they do have a bit of a stewardship role over the system that is just good government is, I think, I don't really want to give them points for it, but I think it is a maturation of where they're from and where they started. Totally. And I think on sex ed, I will say I'm happy that that sort of nine-year journey from the time when McGinty first uh, walked the new curriculum back is like over and nobody is well served, especially kids of any curriculum being a political football, but especially a curriculum like this with so many sensitive topics. So I just think like it did show a maturity of this government to take their lumps with their own base um, to move forward on that and, and close that chapter. So I will give them uh, credit for that. They, of course, deserve all of the criticism from both the left and right for making such a political football of this, but I'm at least glad that it's over. Moving forward to what their priorities are, if we can agree that maybe they've sort of started governing somewhat more like a normal government, it's an interesting dance they're doing around the cuts. The focus on attrition, uh, which is sort of like they're just not hiring people back into positions as they leave, and the claim that many surplus school board staff will be recalled to work attempts to kind of minimize the impact of their, their cuts. Just from folks who know how the system is funded, uh, how true is the claim and what can kids and families expect the real impact on the ground to be in this school year? It's funny because I just checked in with Grayson's teacher from last year, who was this absolutely fantastic teacher who she was there. She was at Parkdale Public School on an LTO. She was super dynamic. She trained as an ECE before she became a kindergarten teacher. So had this really dynamic energy. Grayson absolutely loved her. And so because she was on a full-time LTO, and then this year she only got offered a really short-term contract. And so that's an example of someone who went from full-time employment. She's young. I think she's about 30. And then now this year, she only got offered, I think, like a kind of two-month LTO to cover, I think, for someone who's off on a mat leave or something. And again, like these are the kinds of things that don't quite get captured because from that point of view, these aren't people, it's not a major shift, but if you're sort of someone who's just starting out, she's just she's young and married and looking to try and get settled. Potentially, her and her partner would like to be saving to buy a house, to start a family, these kinds of things. And also the loss to the children, like at Parkdale Public School, she someone who wanted to teach it. And that, particularly in that community, which is a very dynamic and, and higher needs community. And, and I think the school would have been like really lucky and really happy to have her. 
these are the kinds of things that are not captured in these data. And so I just want to kind of put that on the table that like, yeah, sure, you can sort of try and minimize it with that. But like, you're still just like missing out on so much and people like that who, you know, who are just ready to launch lives and careers and help lots of other little lives. On like more anecdotes, but on the politics of it too, I've been watching some like my social media feeds and talking to like family and friends and stuff. And it's interesting how now everything to do with class size, the Ford government is wearing. So like somebody was complaining about their kindergarten classroom being at like 28 kids. And they've actually changed nothing about the funding for class size for FDK, but the public doesn't follow the, you know, nuts and bolts. And so it's all wrapped into Ford has done this, which I think is... Yeah, you can try to sugarcoat less adults in the school, but it's a thing that people are going to notice eventually. I'm also curious to ask about math, because this is an area where they seem to be trying to make a big impact. We see Stephen Lecce talking as often as he can about math and STEM. It's actually one of the few policy priorities that has emerged. It's not just looking back and saying that everything the liberals did suck, although there is still a little bit of it. They still talk a lot about discovery math. But what do we think of their approach on this file, these testing teachers for math proficiency? What should they do? What do we think they should do if they want to make a real difference? So uh, I like the teacher testing concept in theory, personally. I think I have definitely have problems with how they've designed it. Uh, and the reason that I'm supportive of it in concept is because I think there is a lot of evidence that individual teachers, especially in that sort of grade six to eight range where we're um, having trouble, especially with the math scores and where math starts to get more difficult and also is still tends to be taught by homeroom teachers and, and is sort of a generalist uh, subject. You're not specializing in math in the same way often because that's a huge problem and because the teachers themselves have said, and, and there have been you know articles written about this, that they're feeling worried about their own math. Uh, abilities and that that is being passed on to the kids and that there's a lot to say for having very confident teachers in those in those grades who can really say that they've mastered these uh, these concepts themselves um, and that that I think would have a, an important impact on the outcomes and it's the choice of a test is it's a more heavy-handed approach for sure but the math strategies that have been in place for a while now have focused a lot on professional development for teachers and so the idea that helping teachers teach math, that's a, a long-standing idea to try to affect this problem. And I think the test concept is kind of a logical next step to that. I do think focusing it on every teacher uh, in a teacher's college doesn't make a ton of sense because, as I said, this really is a problem that, that is specific to me, to a subset of teachers. And also, teachers' colleges are already doing a ton. I mean, most, most teachers' colleges have for a number of years because of this issue had their own tests, their own enrichment programs. I mean, I think they're churning out teachers who are much more capable currently of teaching math perhaps than predecessors would have been before these kinds of programs were brought in. And so to me, it's very, very difficult to implement in reality. But if you if you were fixated on having a test and you wanted to take this idea to its logical conclusion, you would need to expand that test to current teachers in a targeted way and basically say, you know, we're going to invest in you and we're going to um, help you get up to this level um, and to be able to pass this test because, you know, that's uh, what you'd need to do if it was ever going to be palatable to the teachers. It's a good concept. I have issues with how they've designed it and I don't know that it would ever be implementable in the way that it maybe needs to be implemented if we were really serious about it. In addition to you, the Stephen Lecce keeps sort of citing this OISE study that um, highlighted issues in teacher math proficiency. And the authors of the study have basically pushed back. Uh, they actually tweeted at the minister a couple of days ago saying, asking him to stop referring to the OISE research to serve this particular point, that they are mishandling the evidence and that they're uh, finding support that course-based engagement uh, and supporting teacher candidates' math knowledge through interventions at the teacher training level is effective and like a necessary part of the training regime that needs to be there. 
And basically, like slapping on an EQAO administered test is not, in fact, the outcome that is supported by the research that they've done. Absolutely, like you don't you don't need a test in order to to make sure that teachers in teachers college are getting the proficiency in math that they need. But that always you said he did suggest that something more needs to be done if you're going to make sure that your teachers are graduating with the comfort in math that we would expect them to be showing after they've graduated. And so, you know, the test is a blunt tool, but it is one way to approach that. And it doesn't follow logically from the OISE study. Um, it is a great study. And what it does show is that is much room for improvement in the math abilities of new teachers. I do think it's interesting how the media has finally it sort of clicked that this discovery math is not maybe the problem and pointing to the EQAO evidence that math competencies of arithmetic are actually strong and it's in problem solving that students are struggling on the EQAO test. It took many, many years for them to get there, which I think is interesting. But I guess I will also just say what is never picked up though in the context in the media narrative or even really in the education community narrative is that math scores are falling or stalling around the Western world. It's not an Ontario-focused problem. And so I think, yes, we need to look at what's going on in Ontario and create Ontario solutions. But I just think like it's lost in the narrative that there must be a common thread that is not tied to the specific curriculum and learning conditions in a particular education system. And I've read some interesting theories about basically like kids' brain chemistry and the ability to focus long enough on have the resilience to problem solve is maybe falling and maybe changes in, you know, technology or parenting or whatever have caused that. But there just there must be a thread that links jurisdictions on why that's why kids are struggling more than they used to. That's not to say we shouldn't create solutions. I'm just it's interesting how often it is painted as an Ontario only problem to be fixed by, you know, the Ontario Teachers Colleges and it's very much being positioned as a teacher problem, I think, to your point earlier, to support a bargaining position. That is really frustrating because I yeah, it's a real problem and I'm glad that they're aware of it. But yeah, I'm not sure this is the best mode to go about it. I want to move on to another Another interesting thing to do with youth, uh, the government announced, and this was news to me, I was perusing Ontario Newsroom in uh, preparation for this episode, and they've announced quietly a new one-month-long consultation on improving the child welfare system with a press release that really sounds like it could have been written by a liberal government. So it's one month. It is on the entire child welfare system, but they want to focus specifically on the overrepresentation of Black and Indigenous youth, quality and consistency of care and service. But they've also included an ominously worded bullet that says, despite a 23% reduction in the volume of youth in care, the system is not functioning effectively. Listeners will remember that we covered the Brandt Children's Aid Society earlier this year when the board stepped down in the face of not being able to operate with cuts they were handed by the provincial government. I must admit, this kind of threw me for a loop. It didn't make a lot of headlines, but they appear to be looking at the entire child welfare system. What options does this open for them? Where do we think they're heading with this? I think it's it's probably too soon to tell. There's sort of two options, two major categories that I can see. One being that they have realized that they've uh, embarked on a whole bunch of large-scale changes recently without doing consultation beforehand, and they truly realize that that has been a mistake, and they're trying to turn over a new leaf by consulting with the sector. I mean, that's kind of difficult to think that that is the case given the short length of this consultation and being only a month, which kind of brings me to the second bucket, which is 
they have already decided that they're going to make some large scale changes to the system to overhaul it in some way. And this is an approach to have a conversation, which they then point to to say that whatever it is they decide to bring in or have already decided to bring in was informed by whatever the sector told them. And the fear there that I have is that this is some kind of precursor to a, a large scale consolidation of the 50 children's aid societies across the province. It would not be uh, unusual for this government. In fact, it would be very much in line with their instincts, whether with municipalities, school boards, its local health integration networks to be seeing a whole bunch of different children's aid societies out there and thinking, wow, what if we just mush them all together? That would probably improve things, which is probably very short-sighted. So that's, I think, my chief worry that that's where we're going. Yeah, I agree completely. And I see a lot of parallels. If I were a betting person, um, I think a leading indicator on this one that it is probably a signal for a decision that they may have already made is they did something really similar in university and college pension plans. They announced a three-week-long consultation on university and college pension plans earlier this year. And everyone who was being consulted knew that they basically wanted to end a particular practice where professors could both draw salary and collect their pension at the same time. And regardless of what you think of that, everyone in the sector who submitted position papers on it knew that it was a totally bogus consultation and that they had already made up their mind and were basically just trying to sort of head off a accusation that they did not consult. And a legal challenge. And a legal challenge based on that by having a, a short consultation on, you know, how should we structure pension plans? Like, I agree with you, Alexi. I think it is probably a setup for um, consolidation. I do think that the children's aid sector generally, there's a huge opportunity for, I think, continued like reform and transformation, oh, yeah. especially in funding and governance. So like, if they don't use it as a precursor to massive cuts, but instead actually just focus on making the system uh, more effective, maybe it will be a good thing, but this government deserves no benefit of the doubt. We shouldn't give them the doubt. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I agree with you. I think the system does need an overhaul, but it's one of these systems where you're going to be successful with your overhaul if what you're doing is expanding this, the amount of money that you're willing to spend in this area and using that to grease yeah, the yeah. wheels of change. And that is not what this government does. And so I worry deeply about their approach to the kind of structural change that may be needed or to governance, um, you know, all those kinds of things that, that the government's been working on for a long, long time in a very slow, methodical kind of way that they might try to kickstart that, uh, but without putting the resources in that would be necessary. Other areas where we probably should not give them the benefit of the doubt, we have learned that after putting planned cuts to municipal public health sectors and childcare on hold, the province would be proceeding with a slightly revised plan. Listeners might remember that in a previous plan, the province informed municipalities that they would be on the hook themselves for 40% of program costs for public health, with Toronto in particular being signaled out the province would only be funding 50% of the cost of public health systems. The cuts were retroactive to last year, so cities and towns would have needed to find last year's money for public health initiatives as well. And so they got a lot of pushback. The city of Toronto at a political level and I think just at a civic level was super outraged about this. And the province announced that it would be holding, it would be revisiting these plans. And then Doug Ford went to uh, the Association of Municipalities of Ontario or AMO and announced uh, they'd be proceeding forward with the cuts, but that they would be 30% across the board as opposed to 40% with no singling out of Toronto that municipalities will receive transitional funding to cap cuts at no more than 10% a year. So the cuts will be implemented, but there's going to be a bit of a smoothing. Interestingly, the cuts were largely well received by my favorite AMO subsidiary, LUMCO, the large urban municipalities, the group of mayors that represent large urban groups like Toronto and Hamilton and Ottawa. And so I'm curious for what we think of this change in the government's approach and how they rolled it out. And what can the response tell us about how they're going to manage files like this moving forward? 
I think that they were smart in the way that they framed this as, you know, a climb down, uh, even though it was still a very significant cut. And I do think they largely got away with it and that far fewer Ontarians heard uh, this news than the original cut. But I do think that the political damage on this file will continue to get felt because I, I always think when things have to get implemented through municipalities, um, there's a far greater chance of constant drumbeat of negativity as they grapple with the service cuts or property tax increases to make up for those changes. And especially now that they're rolling it out over, I guess, three years, you're, you're going to hear about this for years to come. And so I think politically it will continue to do damage for them. Yeah, I agree with that. And much like Sam's uh, example earlier on about people equating large class sizes in FDK and fully kindergarten with boards uh, changes to class sizes, which is uh, really not uh, related. I think this opens up the opportunity for municipalities to continue to berate the government uh, or for people people to just make the connection themselves with anything they see wrong uh, with the municipality as being a result of Ford's cuts. And the lack of knowledge of this climb down, I think, does work both ways in that, in that fewer people would have heard of the decision to reverse than the original decision to cut by 40%. And so I think a lot of people just aren't aware that the, the government did uh, sort of climb down a little bit. But for those that did hear it, I think this is a great example of uh, how governments can manipulate people through the framing of these kinds of things. If, if you brought in a 30% cut announced out of the mm-hmm. blue, it would receive relatively similar backlash to the 40% cut that they originally brought in, just because uh, the difference in people's minds between 30 and 40 isn't substantial enough to make much of a difference. Um, but by scaling it back to 30%, they can now frame it as a compromise or and, and even people opposing it can claim victory as you know having successfully opposed the Ford government. And so suddenly the result is happier in people's minds than if they had simply brought in a 30% cut to start with. Yeah, absolutely. It is actually like the same logic as like when you go into a store and they are saying, oh, like here's a great shirt that's 40% off. And you're like, oh, sure. Oh, yeah, sure. It's like, it's like, you know, the shirts are originally like a stupid price and like most of their clothes are marked down all the time. But you're like, oh, this is a great deal. So that was it for our discussion this week. Lots going on in this province, even as the federal election kicks into full swing. But we talked a little bit about what is sure to become the biggest story as the fall goes on the negotiations between the teachers' federations and the Ontario government on the next round of teacher collective agreements. With the rhetoric heating up between teachers in the province, the very real possibility of labor action and strikes not seen in Ontario since the 1990s and the Harris government is looming over the province this year, this fall, as the province strikes a hard line with unions trying to protect their members. To get in the weeds on this, I sat down with Harvey Bischoff, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers' Federation for check-in. Let's listen in. So for our listeners who might not know uh, about the typical cycle of a labor negotiation, what does a normal one look like from your perspective? Yeah, the, the answer to that is a bit more elusive than you might think because uh, typicals change so much over the years that I've been involved. Um, it used to involve um, just local bargaining. It then evolved to the point where we had voluntary discussions with the provincial government, which helped set parameters that we then took to local bargaining and bargained directly with school boards. Um, And now since 2014, we have this statutory two-tier bargaining regime where there is a central table on behalf of all of my members and then local tables for each bargaining unit. But typically, I mean, we serve notice to bargain at the first opportunity. It says it's our intention to 
bargain amendments to the collective agreement. We begin setting dates and very typically the old contract expires before a new one is completed. In fact, I can't think of a time when we had completed a new contract before the old one had expired. But although that sounds dire to some people, in fact it's not because the terms and conditions of the old contract remain in place unless either the union or the employer side takes steps through the labor relations process to alter them. So in fact, we live under the old terms, we move forward and continue to bargain as long as we're making progress. That sort of bifurcation of what gets bargained locally and provincially is one that I think is probably opaque to most people. Most people think it is just, you know, the teachers and the government. So what kinds of things happen at the local table versus the sort of the government table? Yeah, a little background to that might Mm -hmm. be helpful because up until 1997, school boards had the ability, although they got funding from the provincial government, they also had the ability to um, raise their own own taxation. They, they They could raise their own revenues. Um, And therefore, they had some control over the total pot of money they were working with. And so bargaining happened between uh, a bargaining unit and a local school board employer. When all of the school board funding got centralized with the provincial government, and so there is no other funding stream for local school boards, it became clear over time that just bargaining with uh, entities that didn't hold the purse strings didn't make sense. In our view, what should be bargained centrally directly with the government are those things that require significant government funding. So salary, cost of benefits, uh, overall staffing generation, the number of support staff, number of teachers that you're going to have in our in our schools. These things need to be bargained with the people who, who are in control of the flow of money. It's our contention that virtually everything else should be negotiated with local school board employers and be responsive to local cultures and the histories that they've developed and the local geographies. It's different running a group of schools in Toronto and, you know, under that sort of concentration than it is in Ontario Northeast, where they stretch for a, you know, a four-hour drive across the Northeast portion of the province. I'm curious for your impressions of of this government. You've been through a couple cycles now, going into one with a, a brand new government. This is their first time at this. Uh, how has their approach differed from uh, previous governments, that, uh, including ours, that, that you bargained with? Well, I think there's there's one fundamental difference, which is that despite the fact that we have a relatively new minister who's going around the province and dropping the phrase good faith bargaining over and over again, in fact, he's already had his thumb on the scales since before the process even began. You know, this government announced back in March that they would be cutting one quarter of Ontario's high school teaching positions out of the system through this move to a 28 to 1 funded class average. Back in June, while I was actually at the bargaining table with representatives of the Crown across from us, we find out via social media that they have introduced legislation to interfere with uh, bargaining for compensation. And so the claim of good faith bargaining is false from the outset. Governments come to the table with agendas, um, as does the union side, as does the school board side. That's, That's the way, you know, that's perfectly reasonable in negotiations, but to tip the bargaining table in their favor before the process even begins, that's very different from what we've seen in the recent past. You know, additionally, we saw a government that was talking about how the uh, Ontario's publicly funded education system was broken. Um, we heard that repeatedly from the previous minister and from the from the premier, whereas the last government had as one of its stated objectives, building public confidence in the publicly funded education system, which is entirely appropriate. 
Um, if you view public education as I do, as one of the absolute cornerstones of our democracy and, and the creation of equity in this province, you don't attack it and claim it's broken when, by every measure internationally, it's doing extremely well. So that's different as well. Um, that said, we haven't yet actually got to the substantive bargaining part, so more to come. You mentioned the um, the wage cap bill. How exactly are do these affect sort of the, the, the range of options for you, uh, what you're going to be going into? On its face, that bill would cap compensation increases. This is total compensation um, at 1% for, per year for the next three years. It would have retroactive effects so that if it's passed sometime in the fall, it could retroactively go back and pick up collective agreements that were uh, negotiated in the meantime since its introduction. It is, uh, to me, a, a blatant interference with free collective bargaining. Inflation is higher than that. You know, my members have fallen behind inflation since 2012. Every year, the settlements, and, and I, mm. I, I take no pride in that as a union leader. That's, that's been the reality that we're dealing with. But they've fallen behind inflation for seven straight years. And now they're saying that, you know, we need to fall further behind, uh, behind inflation and behind the average of the settlements across the public and private sector. So... Mm. It's a massive interference. If they go ahead with it, there's every likelihood that we will challenge it in court as, uh, as violating my members' constitutional rights to bargain freely. And we'll see, we'll see how that goes. But at, at the moment, to claim that they're engaged in a good faith bargaining process while they've put that forward is just... It's another example of where, of where the ministry's stated intentions and their actions don't align. It's very clear. I think this government sort of from the outset made it very clear that their chief priority was probably saving money. Uh, and then, you know, they have a couple other things after that to want to get to. Curious for for your members what the big issues on the table are, you know, your uh, things to, to that you're looking to achieve, uh, given maybe this sort of more limited and skewed table that you've been given. Yeah, so... We haven't yet got to the substantial part of bargaining. We haven't yet even put our brief. The government hasn't put its bargaining brief on the table. So to talk mm. about what's on the table before we even exchange positions wouldn't be, wouldn't be fair for me to, to do that. Um, but we know what's in the environment. We know what the government is talking about publicly. And we know the policy they've passed to eliminate a quarter of high school teaching positions over the next four years. And the number of support staff losses is so far... Um, not calculated. And, and I mean, just by example, we've seen losses of professional student services personnel. These are child and youth workers and psychologists and behavior experts and so forth. We've seen losses in, in you know, Toronto and Halton. And, and in Upper Canada, we've seen fully 50% of the professional student services personnel there laid off. A half of the bargaining unit was laid off. These were behavior experts, particularly child and youth workers, and there is no plan to replace their services. So with those things being out there in the, in the environment, you can imagine that we have our eye on them. Is the status quo untenable from a getting a deal perspective? If the government doesn't relent on one of its actions that it already has implemented, do you see the potential for disruption in the in the fall? I, I hate to focus on that when we haven't yet got to the bargaining table and exchange positions. And I'd like to focus on proposals that we'll make that are good for Ontario students and good for the education system. And frankly, good for the future economy that those high quality Ontario graduates will will graduate into. So like I say, it's, not, it's not an area I want to focus on right now. But I will say the status quo right now, with the current loss of staff, teachers and support staff, the caring professionals in our schools, 
And the intention to escalate that for each of the next three years is not tenable if you want to maintain the high-quality public education system that we've, that we've had in Ontario. I tell you, I would have more respect for these guys if they would simply say, truthfully, we don't believe that we can afford high-quality publicly funded education in Ontario, and then let's have the debate on real grounds. Instead, they, they obfuscate and they pretend that they're doing something other than what they're really doing. But no, I mean, we've already seen the stories coming out of high schools all across the province. In the first year, classes of 40 students, in the first year, students who can't get the courses they need to graduate when they're in their grade 12 year, or grade 10 students with two spares on their timetable because there aren't enough courses to offer them. So no, it, it's absolutely not a tenable status quo. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious, for those areas that the government appears to be looking to make progress from a policy perspective, uh, we've seen the minister tra- travel around the province talking about STEM and preparing students for jobs and uh, a focus on math. Uh, you've been a vocal critic of their strategies, and we, we've talked about some of them here. If a government wanted to make progress on those areas, what alternatives would you suggest they, they consider? We will, um, as one of the stakeholders in, in providing high-quality, publicly funded education, be happy to consult with them on all of those things. I'll tell you, the first thing you don't do if you want to improve access to STEM is cut a quarter of Ontario's STEM teachers, and at minimum of a quarter of Ontario's STEM classes, because in many cases, like the tech courses, for example, are the hardest to offer because they have a natural class size maximum that arises out of the equipment you require and safety concerns and and so forth. So so we'll be happy to, you know, we would be happy to join with them and promote STEM as one one pathway through through high school for students who want to pursue that. When it comes to math, can we can we please just stop the political posturing around that and sit down and have an evidence-informed discussion about what makes for a good math curriculum? I'm deeply concerned about the math curriculum as it exists right now. And and when you look at at least one measure, you know, the grade six EQAO scores, we have reason, I think, to be concerned. We'd be happy. I mean, my members, they get in grade nine, the students who have come through the elementary curriculum, those elementary teachers are working hard and doing their very best by those students. I'm not convinced that the curriculum that they're required to follow is the best. So let's, let's sit down with experts in the field with pedagogical experts and work out what might be, you know, let's look around the world at where math is being delivered extremely well and let's let's adopt those things. Happy to get into into that sort of thing, but kind of, you know, uh, demonizing teachers, claiming they're not sufficiently well prepared, claiming that giving a math test to secondary teachers who will never teach math or giving a math test to secondary teachers who already have, you know, in many cases, uh, in all cases, basically, if you're teaching high school math, you have a university math background, giving them a test on math is is redundant and absurd, and it's not going to improve scores. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. Last question for today. Um, moving forward, there's uh, labor negotiations passed. There's always the conversation happening at the table. And then there is the conversation in public. And they, they can sometimes be the same and they can sometimes diverge a little bit. Are you hearing the same thing from the government in, in both, both arenas? Uh, do you have any concerns going forward into that sort of PR battle with the public? So we haven't gotten to the substantive part of bargaining, as yeah. I've mentioned. But, but what I'm hearing publicly from the government, their actions and their intention and their stated intentions don't align at all. So mm-hmm. you can't improve education while you're cutting out all of the you know, education professionals that they're in the process of removing. 
So, you know, I have concerns about that. But in terms of the public relations, you know, when I was a local chief negotiator back in a, in a different time when the bargaining was very much directed to uh, local school boards, I used to tell my members if they were, you know, oh, the public's not going to like that proposal, I would say, I don't bargain with the public, I bargain with an employer. Um, and fact is, that's no longer the case. In bargaining directly with the provincial government, there's an extent to which we absolutely, we absolutely bargain with the public. If we're putting forward proposals that are unsupportable by the public, um, then the government will feel empowered to, to reject those and, you know, perhaps uh, move in, in ways that we've seen before to... Uh, to try to crush our ability to even even bargain them. So so we um, we have to keep the public's desire for a quality education system in mind. We always have, uh, but I think it's a matter more of, of perhaps of just being very clear about the fact that what we're negotiating is good for students, is good for the education system. And so if we're going to get into something like a discussion about class sizes, we need to demonstrate not only that we're pursuing that, but that there's a whole body of evidence that supports that that is a good approach to improve the quality of education for the, for the kids uh, that that we're serving in our classes every day. And especially under the current circumstances, there is no clever bargaining solution to the environment that we're in right now. This is a political battle as much as it's anything. And in fact, I would say more than anything else, this will be won through uh, political action more than what you'd hope the bargaining table is, uh, which is a uh, problem-solving exercise between a couple of parties or three parties in this case trying to reach the same end goals. Um, that has changed right now, and so we're very much into a political mode. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. I want to thank Harvey Bischoff for joining the podcast, and best of luck to all the teachers going into what is going to be a difficult process this fall. Thanks for coming on, Harvey, and explaining why that's going to be the case. Ontario Loud is brought to you by volunteer and listener support. Kate, Sam, Alexi, and I are supported by Aisha Anwar, Harmon Monday on Social, and Philip Askew helps mix and edit the show. So thank you to them. If you have a comment or a question, you can email OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com or get at us on Twitter at OntarioLoud. Next week, we'll be returning to our federal election coverage. So have a great week and we will see you then. Bye.